Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, we thank you that your light shines in the darkness. And we thank you that your desire is for all people, groups and nations to come to know you as the true and living God. And so, Lord, this morning we lift up the Uyghur people to you. And we pray that in the midst of this severe persecution and potential genocide, that they may come to salvation. We thank you for stories already of personal salvation and for the way that your spirit is at work. And we pray that you would unveil their eyes to the truth of the gospel and that you would turn their hearts towards you that they may enter into salvation and enter into the kingdom of God. And Father God, we thank you that while there is an element of the kingdom of God that we wait for fulfilment, we thank you that the kingdom of God touches earth now. And we thank you that you're a God of justice and that you're concerned about injustice in our world. And we pray that you would turn your eyes towards the Uyghur people and that you would not forget them. Lord, we pray that you would raise up pressure uh, from the international community on China that this course of action will not be able to be sustained. And we pray for the worldwide church as well. We pray that we may play our part in prayer and advocacy. Praying a blessing this morning on the church in China and those hundred million plus Christians that meet to worship this day many in the underground church. May they know your presence with them today. Father God, as we turn our own thoughts towards your word now, we ask that you would speak to us through it by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are going to read God's word now. And if you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we are going to read from verse 25 to verse 32. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 to 32. God's word says this to us this morning. Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work, doing something useful with their own hands that they might have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Amen. Well, on the 3rd of December 1967 in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, a 53-year-old patient, Louis Washkansky, received the first human heart transplant from a young woman named Denise Darvel, who had died in a car crash. That operation was performed by Christian Barnard, and it was the first of its kind in the world. And whenever I think about that story, it reminds me of the words of God in Ezekiel chapter 36 and the Christian message of hope and transformation. And in Ezekiel 36, we see God turning up and saying, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit, one where your arteries are not clogged up with sin, which causes you to be stubborn and cold towards me but a new heart that is tender and responsive to me, that beats in time with mine, that is responsive to my love for you and that desires a relationship with me. That's what God does for us as we receive that new heart, as we receive that new spirit. God tells us in Ezekiel that a change begins to happen in our lives. We begin to delight in God and in his ways. And that leads to changes within us in our character and how we choose to do life. It's an outworking of Jesus' work on the cross applied individually to each of our lives. And each of us this morning have different things that God needs to deal with us about I wonder what it is for you this morning. What are the areas of your life that are under construction? We know in a medical sense that a heart transplant is just the beginning of a new life. What is even more critical is a subsequent change in lifestyle to make the most of that gift and opportunity and in order to keep fit and healthy. And that picture fits well spiritually also yes we come to faith and as we come to faith that transformation begins and we receive that new heart that new spirit that new identity in Christ the old is gone the new has come that's just the beginning we all know that there is still brokenness in our lives which we need to invite Jesus into in order to bring healing and restoration. We know that there's still areas of our lives where sin needs to be cast out. And Jesus needs to come and reign and reside more fully. And that is a constant work of surrendering to him, of yielding to him, of inviting him in. And that should encourage you this morning. You know, too often I've heard sermons and perhaps been guilty of preaching sermons where the implication has been, if you know Christ, you should now have your lives all together. 
Jesus didn't come to call the healthy, he came to call the sick. He didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. And Christ sees our brokenness. And he knows this morning that we're not the finished article. But the good news is that he loves us. And he wants to make us more like Jesus. And that's a lifetime's work. And it won't be completed till we get to glory. But while we're here on earth, God is at work in our lives. And we all carry around signs that say we're a work in progress. And this morning it's okay to have flaws. None of us are perfect. Not even me. But the one thing that does matter is that we're still happy to invite the Holy Spirit in to do a work within us. You know, it's like having the keys to a building site and each morning we need to open the door for Jesus to come in and to determine what work needs to happen that day and to let him get on with it. And the problem comes that some of us have stopped unlocking the door every morning because that process has been painful as Jesus has sought to bring around change and deal with issues in our lives. And quite frankly, there are old habits and ways of thinking and living, which perhaps we don't want to let go of yet. Perhaps others of us have wrongly assumed that the transformation is complete, that there's no more work for him to do. But all of us need to hold up God's word to our lives and we need to allow the Spirit to come and to deal with issues in us. And so this morning as we come to these verses, perhaps our prayer could be, Lord, today will you come and do a new work within me by your Spirit to make me more like Jesus. So let's look at Scripture and this morning we have uh, a few verses uh, which challenge four different areas of our lives. Whereas Christians, we can either positively be used to build one another up and to grow in our relationship with God, or negatively, we can act in such a way where we tear one another down and we do harm to our relationship with God. And so we're going to look at these four areas and as we go through them, just ask yourself, does the way that I conduct myself build up or tear down? And the first area we're going to look at is the power of our words. So let's just read verse 25 and then verse 29. Verse 25 says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. And then jump to verse 29, which says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. One of the most powerful things that any of us has, if not the most powerful, is our words. We know that words have the power to tear down or to build up. Some of us listening this morning have spent our lives hearing criticism. Perhaps from a parent or a spouse 
or a peer group or someone else close to us. That old phrase that sticks and stones may break my bones but words will never hurt me. Well we know that's just not true. We spend our lives being told we are useless and not good enough and everything we do is criticised. Then those words take root in our hearts and minds and what we hear can shape our perception of ourselves. We contrast that to someone whose life has been spent in a nurturing, encouraging, affirming environment. And you can sometimes see the difference. We know ourselves how our hearts leap when we receive an encouraging word or an encouraging email or message. Or someone just comes along and says, well done. So thankful for you. You've done a great job. You are loved. You are valued. Words have power. We know in our relationships that words can build relationships or destroy relationships. How many friendships or relationships have ended because of something someone said? Ephesians says to us this morning, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. What great advice. Imagine that we practice that. How different would our relationships with one another be? And the focus here by Paul is on the community and one another. What if we were only on the receiving end of what build us up? That is... A community of God's people, we were sensitive to one another, to each other's needs, to what is going on in each other's lives. And we only sought to speak a word in season that would benefit someone. So often our words can tear one another down within the community of God's people. And we can also have a negative effect on others. I read a story this week of a woman in a village, it could have been a man, but it was an example of a woman who maliciously gossiped about another lady and her family in the village. Well, one day she found out that she was wrong about this lady and her family and she had a change of heart. And so she went to speak to one of the village elders who was a wise man. And she asked how she could take back the words that she had said because she was wrong to do so. Well, the wise man told her to go home and to kill a chicken and to pluck its feathers and to put them in a bag. And after this, she was to go back and see the wise man again. But on her way, she was to scatter all the feathers that she had plucked from the chicken. Well, the lady did as she was told. And when she got back to the man, he told her, now go back and pick up all the feathers that you have scattered. Well, the woman was astonished at such a command and said, by now the wind will have carried the feathers throughout the village and beyond. The wise man turned to her and said this, and so it is with your careless words. They are like the feathers scattered in the wind. You cannot retrieve them. The damage has already been done. 
Such a story contains truth. Reminds us of the power of watching our words and how often things that are said cannot be taken back. Reminds us to be wise with our words, within the community of God's people, with our neighbours, our friends and family. And perhaps this morning as we take God's word and apply it to our own culture and context, perhaps this is not just a command about words that are spoken verbally, but words that are written down as well. Perhaps on email or by text or on social media. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes reminds us that the wise person is often silent, letting their words be few, speaking sparingly. Perhaps there is a wisdom in learning to be silent, only speaking when necessary and with great caution and care. When we look at our culture and we see so much that is spoken of, both verbally and on social media, which is destructive. And I see Christians all the time on social media engaging in things that are just not helpful. We all know the power as well of receiving an email or, or text that is just critical and how those words weigh on our hearts and minds. Nine times out of ten, we need to refrain from sending that critique. We need to realise it will do more harm than good. It will cause anguish. Why don't we learn to let our words be few and to be measured? Just as I'm speaking, the film Bambi pops into my head and I think about that character, uh, Thumper the Rabbit, who's been taught repeatedly. If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. Perhaps there's some wisdom in that as well. So the power of our words, firstly, that can build up or tear down. What about yours? And then secondly, and briefly, we have anger. Verse 26 and 27 say this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. And then in verse 31 it says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Is the emotion of anger wrong? The answer is no. Instead, Ephesians says, in your anger, do not sin. Principle at work here in scripture is this, that all of us get angry. Even Jesus got angry when he walked into the temple, his father's house, and saw how it had been turned into a den of robbers. In fact, he was so angry he got a whip and began overturning tables. Incredible. And so the principle here is when you get angry, don't let it lead to sin. What does that mean? Well, while Jesus did get angry, in many ways he was slow to anger. And Jesus got angry at the right things. I wonder if that's you this morning. It seems to me that our world is full of anger and is always on the cusp of rage. And yet are they the things that we should be getting angry about? 
What did Jesus get angry about? Well, he got angry about blatant, repetitive sin, especially from those who should have known better. We're reminded that Jesus was actually gracious and compassionate. He expected sinners to sin. He was slow to anger. He was rich in love towards them. But there were some, often the religious leaders who should have known better and been enlightened to God's ways, who kept on sinning. And it was then that Jesus got angry. But note that his anger was always justifiable. And the outworking of his anger, his response was always justifiable as well. Clearing the temple was a justifiable outworking of his righteous anger. But his anger was always controlled and Jesus was never provoked to anger by others. In fact, when Jesus' enemies turned against him and arrested him, an act which could rightly have brought out Jesus' anger, he said nothing. Instead, seeking forgiveness on their behalf. Amazing. This morning, are you an angry person? Is your anger justified or not? How do you express your anger? Does your anger lead you to sin? Believe that we should be slow to anger. That like our words, that our anger should be used wisely and proportionately. We should be angry when we see sin. We should be angry when we see injustice in our world like that inflicted on the Uyghur people, which we've been praying about. But when we are angry, we need a proportionate, considered response. And that's why prayer is often a helpful tool in processing our anger. Asking God to lead us to a place where we would act appropriately before him. Ephesians reminds us that in our relationships with one another, a place where we can get angry as well, we're not to let that anger be left unresolved, lest the devil get a foothold and it leads to bitterness and rage. Instead, Ephesians tells us, don't let the sun go down in anger. Talk about it. Work through it. Deal with it in a biblical way. Through good communication and by practicing forgiveness, and mercy and grace and love and we could do a whole sermon on that but this is practical biblical wisdom for living as a community of God's people and in relationship with one another and the point is simple don't let anger fester we all know we have an argument with someone often caused actually by poor misunderstanding or a poor choice of words point one that we've been looking at in our sermon then we go to bed with things unresolved. And what happens overnight? Well, instead of sleeping, we replay those words over and over again through the watches of the night. And those words and those comments spoken grow arms and legs. And this bitterness about the person sets in. And it robs us of peace. And it begins to tear down that relationship. Keep short accounts. 
Practice grace. Seek forgiveness and practice forgiveness. And if you're an angry person, bring that anger into God's presence and ask him to deal with it this morning. I'm reminded of that illustration of the person who's angry and bitter. And it's like drinking poison and hoping that the other person will suffer. Anger does us no good. Bitterness does us no good. We need to bring it to the cross this morning and ask Jesus to help us to deal with it. So the power of words, build up or tear down. Anger, building up or tearing down. And thirdly, our resources. Are we using them to build up or tear down? Verse 28 says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Very briefly, like the others, this command begins by telling us the negative side of things, followed by a positive command, showing us how we should live instead. When we think about theft, often we think about bank robberies or maybe stealing cars or shoplifting. What about taking items from the workplace, property that belongs to our employers? Uh, apparently firms lose millions of pounds each week by employers just taking stationery and other items. What about eating someone else's cake that's sitting in the fridge at work? Stealing ultimately is about using a resource that is not ours. Malachi 3.8 says, will a mere mortal rob God? Something that we would think is impossible. And yet it goes on to say, yet you have robbed me. You ask, how are you robbing me? In withholding tithes and offerings. Stealing is taking what is rightfully someone else's. Whether it's things that belong to others or things that belong perhaps to God. We need to be mindful of how we use our resources. And so God says a couple of things. Firstly, he speaks about providing for ourselves. And he reminds us that inbuilt into creation and into the order of the world, God has provided a way for providing for ourselves. And it's called work. Often we think about work as being cursed. But we forget the bit before that in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, where work was actually a gift from God. It was given as a blessing. It was given for our good. That's a thought to hold on to as you approach Monday morning. Your work is a gift from God and it's a blessing from God. Do you view it as such? And work is given as a way of honestly as opposed to stealing, providing for yourself and the needs of those within your household. And so the principle here is that those who are able to work should pursue employment rather than crime. But God knows that the world is a complicated place. He understands the social problems that are found in a broken fallen world 
And so work has a secondary purpose as well. And that is to provide for others, especially those in unemployment, those who are poor, those who cannot work. You know, pre-social security, the Bible actually sets out a range of ways in which God's people can use their money and resources in order to bless others and to build up the community of God's people. The Old Testament gives us certain principles for how we use our money. There is the principle in scripture of giving the first fruits to God out of recognition that he is the good giver and that all that we have comes ultimately from him. And so in the community of God's people, whenever they gathered in the harvest or received their wages, that which they received, immediately they gave a proportion to God. And it was given to God through offering offerings into the temple and that was a way to facilitate both the worship of God but also there was a, a command and an expectation on the leaders in the temple that they would use that money for good to bless others including the poor and orphans and widows. And secondly money was used to provide for those earning it not just for themselves but in that society to provide for their families and their extended families and those within the household for whom people had responsibilities. So at a family and household level, there was a sharing of resources. But then thirdly, and in addition, the people were also to use a proportion of what God had blessed them with to bless others, especially those who did not have anything. And that was seen in practices like harvest time, where they harvested the fields but left some crops to be gathered by the poor and foreigners who did not own any land as a means of providing for others. All of us have different incomes, different standards of living. But how are we going to use the resources that God has given us whether few or many, to bring blessing to God and to build others up. Do you take a proportion of what God has given you and give it back to him? Do you use it, yes, to provide for your own families, rightly so, but also to bless others? A few years ago when I was preaching on this, I said that God prospers us in order not to increase our standard of living, but our standard of giving. That's a continual challenge to me and to all of us in a very counter-cultural way of thinking. So how do we use our words? What about anger and our attitudes? How are we using them? What about our resources? And finally it says this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Instead, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, 